So I want to start out this morning by saying a word that we all know very well. And we like to blame toddlers for overusing it, but I think we all do. And that word is mine. Not like a coal mine. But mine. That's mine. What's yours is mine. What's mine is mine. What's theirs is mine. It's all mine. Those things that are distinctly yours. Okay, that is mine. Anybody got a favorite coffee cup that nobody else is allowed to use? Uh, Lucas, okay. He carried, he wields a mean straight razor, so don't touch his coffee cup. Um, I don't know, clothes, shoes, toys, guitars. Um, it's mine. It's mine. Nothing upsets us more than when somebody takes what is ours. That's mine. And when somebody takes it, Our mind is on it, right? We want what is ours. And we want what is ours for what we want it for. And we expect what is ours to perform and to do well. And to yield results to us because it's mine. And when it's not working right, we got serious problems. Anybody ever have a vehicle that didn't work right? You wished it wasn't yours, but it is yours, and you got to get it fixed. You, you got to get to work. You got to get to the store. You got to get to the barber shop. I'll stop now. Anyway, we are very, very protective and particular about what is ours. And we don't like it when what is ours isn't doing for us what we expect it or want it to do. Today, I'm about to tell y'all something that may seem a little shocking. God is the same way. God calls some things His. We'll see at the end, really, He calls all things His. And when what is His doesn't perform the way that He expects it to, God gets upset. Now you're like, you just told me that my sins, we'll get there, stay with me, okay? When God calls what is His, His, He expects results from what is His. We're going to look today at Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. It's a long, longer passage than what we're used to, but it's a, a self-contained unit, and it, what initially didn't make sense to me as far as the context hopefully will make more sense to us as we move through today. So if you would please stand as we read this passage, this public reading of God's Word. This is God's Word. It is His. And He shares it with us. And so we stand up in awe and reverence of the God of the Word and the Word of God. Jesus Christ speaking. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, And threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray. Father, we need your help, and you have given us your spirit so that we might receive your word implanted and bear fruit for your glory. Father, for those of us who do know you because of your grace, plant this seed deep in our hearts and may it produce fruit. If there be anyone sitting here this morning who does not know you, God, pray that we would see the miracle of new birth this morning and that your spirit would breathe life into a dead spirit and bring it to life. Give it light. Give give them the gift of faith that they might believe. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so it's going to help, I think, to set the broad and immediate context both of what this week's passage, uh, where it comes in. If you'll remember, we are here in these chapters in the last week of Jesus' life. And he had come into town um, last week. I'm talking about the immediate context first. Last week he had come into town um, the day after cursing the fig tree. And on the way in this morning, the disciples had seen that fig tree that Jesus had cursed withered from root to tip. And they were amazed and Jesus taught them a faith lesson on faith. Okay. He then went to the temple where he had the day before ran everyone out who was buying and selling. Well, as could be guessed, the Jewish leaders were not happy with Jesus running things in the temple and they confronted him asking him where he got the authority to do these things. This was last week as well. Jesus refused to answer their question, asking them a question in return about where John's baptism had come from. And since they didn't answer him because they were afraid of answering him, he didn't answer their question about where he got his authority to do what he was doing. So then, he told the parable we looked at last week about two sons and their obedience or disobedience to work or not work in their father's vineyard, where Jesus then pronounced that the tax collectors and the prostitutes would enter the kingdom of heaven before the chief priests and elders. Now, before we move into today's passage directly, which is immediately in that same context, okay, it's like next breath, Jesus is going to tell another story. But before we do that, I want to set a broader context, okay, to set the stage for today using some Old Testament passages, specifically referring to fig trees and vineyards, because that's really a big deal in the Old Testament, okay? We've seen the fig tree withered, and that wasn't by accident that Jesus chose a fig tree, okay? He's talking about vineyards, and guess what? It's not by accident that Jesus is talking about vineyards. It's on purpose, okay? And I want to set that Old Testament context so that we can... Pick up what the Holy Spirit's laying down here through Matthew's gospel. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go back to 1 Kings. And this is at the pinnacle of the nation of Israel as a nation under Solomon. And we see this in 1 Kings 4 verses 24 and 25. 
he, Solomon, for he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tifsah to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates and he had peace on all sides around him. Now watch this. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Some of y'all are thinking Hamilton and you're seeing George Washington sing about every man under his vine and fig tree. That's where this comes from, okay? So one of the surest signs of God's blessing, of peace, of the good life as a Jew is abundance, okay? They, the abundance of the grain, the new wine. And what we, what we see here is under Solomon, we see every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Everybody's got more than enough. They've got their own stuff. It's theirs and it's producing for them. Okay, so that's a sign of God's blessing from Dan to Beersheba. That's top to bottom, bottom to top. And now this would be referred to again, this same thought pattern, after the Jews went into exile. Okay, after they were taken out of the land of Israel as exiles by the Assyrians, Babylonians, they're living under the Persians, and, and some of the exiles come back and they're living in Israel again. And this is a prophecy of Micah. But they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So God is saying here, when he really restores the nation of Israel, when he shows his blessing to them as a sign of their being officially back, it will be shown again by every man sitting under his vine and under his fig tree. So there's a picture of Israel in their head of every man having what is theirs. Their vine, their fig tree, and everybody's just happy. And that was a sure sign of God's restoration of them. And Micah prophesied about that. Micah said, it's going to happen. Really, what you're living right now is not really it, but it will happen. God's going to restore what was taken away from you when, when you're actually back. So vineyards and fig trees are kind of the goal. The sure sign of God's blessing for these Jews, looking forward to the restoring of all things for them by God. Now, watch this. Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. God, okay, through the prophet Isaiah, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard, okay, So Isaiah is singing a song about his beloved who is God. And his beloved, God, has a vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard, God says, that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard, God says to Israel. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. 
and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So the people of Israel were looking for their own fig tree, their own vine. But what we see here is God, before he destroyed the southern kingdom of of Judah, from God's vantage point, these people, this nation, is his vineyard. His vineyard that he cultivated, that he worked, that he protected, and that he looked to for a return. And it says he looked for grapes from his vineyard, which is what should come from vineyards, right? But when God's vineyard, Israel, gave him wild grapes, and wild grapes are small, and they're not any good for use for food or wine. When he saw that, he said he was going to stop cultivating that vineyard. He was going to remove its protection and provision. He was going to make it a waste with briars and thorns, no rain falling on it, and it losing its original purpose altogether. And don't miss that verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now that sets the stage in the broader context for what we're going to look at today in our passage. We're going to start with verses 33 through 36 of Matthew 21. So Jesus speaking in the temple to the crowds, to the chief priests, to the elders, to the Pharisees, to the scribes, everybody that's gathered around, and they're challenging his authority. He's already burned them once with a parable last week, and he says this. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. So, keep in mind, Jesus is telling another parable in response to the chief priests and elders questioning his authority there in the temple. The first parable was the one of the two sons. Now, he says, hear another parable. And what I love about the Bible is... Every word matters. And why am I saying that? Because here, the word another. Okay, if we go back to verse 33, here another parable. That word another is important. Okay? Because here, the word for another is A-L-L-O-S. Alos in the Greek, which means another like the other. Okay? Not... Another one unlike the other, that would be the Greek word heteros, where we get our word heterosexual. Another human being that's not the same gender, the same sex as me. Heteros, that's another of a different kind. The word here is alos, which means another like the other. So, Jesus is saying alos, another, which means he's telling another story which is like the one he just told. That's important. He's not changing subjects. He's on the same subject, and he's telling another story to illustrate it. Okay, And he wants to show how the nation of Israel, the religion of Israel, will be woefully inadequate to save people. So he starts this parable telling of a master of a house. And that means a master whose sphere of authority, which we talked about authority last week, whose sphere of authority is the household estate and all that it entails. It is his household, his property, his buildings, his plant, his dirt his produce, etc. And this master planted a vineyard. 
Now from our background in 1 Kings, Micah, and Isaiah, where would the chief priests, elders, and those listening to all this unfold, where would they go in their mind when they thought of vineyard? They would have thought of Israel, nation Israel. Okay? God is the master, and Israel is that vineyard. So they're like, here, here, hearty, har, har. Yes, that's us. Now, who are the tenants? Well, it seems to me that the tenants would be that nation, Israel. When the people called out for a king, God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, 6 through 9. I don't know if I put I did put that up there. Watch this. This is when the people of Israel called out for a king to reign and rule over them besides God. We want to be like the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So to me, I can't help but think that this passage here is related to what we're looking at here in Matthew. It seems like the Israelites asked God to leave. We sang this morning, you are my king. And they said back then, we don't want God to be our king. We want a different king. We want a real king that we can see. God, Bob's saying... God is real, and sometimes it's hard to believe that. They, didn't, they weren't seeing it. So they wanted a king that they could see, touch, listen to with their senses. And I can't help but think as I read this here in Matthew, that when he talks about the king going away, that God said, all right, I'll let y'all run it for a while. When we see this back here in 1 Samuel. So God said, okay. Now he didn't forfeit his ownership of his people. But he leased it out to tenants, which means they would work the ground. They would get some of the produce, but the bulk of it, the profit would go to him. It was for his benefit. It was his. And the tenants were there to work it for him. So he leased it out to tenants, as Jesus said in the parable, to the kings and people of Israel so that they were running things, so to speak. Tenants who benefited from the blessing of being where they were, but ultimately accountable to the owner of the vineyard. And in this case, the owner of this vineyard is God. But vineyards are supposed to produce, to produce, it's like the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable there. Vineyards are supposed to produce like God had said in Isaiah 5 and the owner is looking for a return on his investment. He's looking for grapes from his vineyard. But when he sent servants to get the fruit, uh uh-oh, these servants it says get beaten, killed and stoned wave after wave of them. Well the question is who are those servants in the parable? This is the prophets. God sent prophets to warn Israel what you're doing is not right. And what did they do to the prophets? They killed them. Literally. When somebody would come bringing words of God, there was some reverence and awe. Ooh, the, the man of God, the words of God. And then he would speak the words of God and the people didn't like it and they'd kill them. The prophets got killed. When somebody came bringing the words, the tenants, the people... The leaders of Israel despised those words and they literally beat, killed, and stoned these prophets. Literally. Jesus will address this in chapter 23, Matthew 23, um, when we get there. So I didn't bring that up. But, but Stephen, 
in Acts chapter 7, right before they stone him, says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so you do. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and who did not keep it. So after Jesus is dead, buried, resurrected, ascended into heaven, Stephen looks at the leaders of Israel and says, Which of the prophets did you not kill and persecute? So that was the way with the people of Israel. Israel was notorious for killing the messengers. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this parable so far. But he ain't done yet. Verse 37. Finally, the owner of the vineyard sent his son to them saying, They will respect my son. So things just got real, for real in the story. The field owner gets sick of his messengers getting bludgeoned to death every time he sent them. So he sends who? His son. And who's the son? That's easy, right? We don't, we, we don't have to... It's, it's the Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? Jesus is the son. Surely, the owner of the field says, they will respect my son. Surely. And that would make sense, but 38 and 39. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Surely they'll respect my son. Contrast of conjunction, but they'll respect my son. But the tenants see the son of the field owner coming and they have a little meeting. They huddle up and they say to themselves, Hey, the owner has sent his boy. Let's kill him. He's the heir and when he's gone, we'll take his inheritance. Now that's their mindset in the story. Well, in our parable interpretation, the son is Jesus, the son of the landowner who is God. Well, look at what Jesus is doing here. The week leading up to his death, He is telling the chief priests and elders that they are going to have Jesus killed. Before it happens. Now he has, of course, predicted his death a few times already. But right now, here in the last week of his life, he's laying it at the Jewish leader's feet. Telling them that their plan is going to result in his death. And what did they do? They took him. They threw him out of the vineyard. They took him outside the city. And they killed him. Ultimately, right? They want what is rightfully the fathers and the sons. So kill the son. Because in their mind, the father's never coming back. And then we'll have it all to ourselves. This thing that was never ours to begin with, that we've crafted in our own image, made to benefit us. We want it. And we will kill to get it. We'll even kill the owner's son. And in the parable, that's what they do. But Jesus hadn't sprung this trap yet. He finishes the parable with a question in verses 40 and 41. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus asks. They said to him, and again I think this is the chief priests, the leaders, the scribes, Pharisees. They said to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So he asks some easy question again, kind of like, you know, which son obeyed and which son didn't. They got the answer right. He asks another pretty easy question. 
What will the vineyard owner do to these hired hands when he shows up and starts settling accounts? What will happen? What will he do to those tenants? They, chief priests, elders, say to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Yeah, boy, that's right. That's justice. They've killed his messengers. Goodness gracious, they killed his son. So he will put those wretches to a miserable death. He'll have them killed and justly so. Yes and amen. And then he'll let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Which, to be overly obvious, is what the previous tenant should have done. It was their job to give him, the owner, the fruits in their seasons. So he'll both judge them and then he'll replace them. They reply in a definitive and passionate tone. They would see justice done, these chief priests and elders. But Jesus is about to turn the tables of his parable onto them in a peculiar way. This threw me. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So they, Jesus says, what will this master do? He says, well, he'll kill those miserable wretches and he'll replace them with somebody that will give him what's his. So in reply to their reply, Jesus said to them, have you never scriptures? And he's used this a few times before. It's really a very snarky comment, knowing that these people have lived most of their lives reading the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures from front to back, cover to cover. He's kind of rolling his eyes at their quote-unquote expertise in the scriptures. And then he says, after that, have you never read in the Scriptures? And he quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, let me set the stage for just a second of what that psalm was speaking of. This psalm, Psalm 118, is speaking of God taking Israel, national Israel, and exalting Israel to the chief place in the world. The center of God's working and doing in the world. Israel, in Psalm 118, is the stone that was rejected by the builders. And the builders are the world. But God used Israel as the cornerstone. The most important stone in the building. The starting place for the building of the work that God is doing. And this was the Lord's doing. And it was marvelous in the eyes of the Jews, right? He's taken us who who were nobodies, who were nothings. And he's made us the most important part of his plan in the whole world. And so they would read Psalm 118 and say, God, look what you've done for us. We were despised, rejected, and you made us the centerpiece of your plan. Praise God for what he's done for us. It's the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in the eyes of the Jews. But why would Jesus quote that here? He's not telling a parable of God exalting Israel. Really seems to be quite the opposite, right? He's decrying the failings of Israel to properly do God's will for God's gain, right? Look at verse 43. Therefore I tell you, Jesus says to them, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Okay. So this starts with therefore. So it's referencing back to what Jesus just said, which was the quote from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected, that thing. Have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, 
Since God uses the stone rejected by the builders, therefore I tell you, Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So Israel, especially the religious elitist Jews, feel like they're the cornerstone. But God uses the rejected stone to set up His kingdom. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. God is taking the kingdom from those who had it before. And He will let it out to a different group of people. And those people will be built upon a rejected stone And that people will produce its fruit. And and what stone is Jesus referring to here? What or who is the stone rejected that will become the cornerstone? Well, Peter, in a message in Acts 4, answers this question. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, so this is later, after Jesus has ascended, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This Jesus, Peter says, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So that answers our question pretty simply, right? In the parable that Jesus is telling, the cornerstone that has been rejected by the builders is Him. And we see references to that in Ephesians and in 1 Peter as well. But clearly, Jesus is the stone rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And with this stone in place, God is going to produce and receive fruits from a new people. Because the people who were the tenants originally cast out the cornerstone. But the stone has some other effects as well. Verse 44. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Whoa. (laughs) Jesus finishes this interaction in today's passage with these stunning and frightening words. He, as the cornerstone, says that if one falls on him, is tripped up by him, that person will be broken to pieces. And if he, the cornerstone, falls on anyone, it will crush that person. Now, what's that mean? Jesus is saying... That he will utterly destroy anything or anyone in his way who will not be placed in his building. Who is not a part of his people. Anyone who is opposed to or not a part of his church. I say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. Let me tell you what. You can dismiss the church. You can say the church is failing and falling and is miserable and is full of hypocrites. And if you oppose the work of God, you will be crushed. You will be ground to powder. You will be pulverized. Because the plan of God is marching on. And He's marching on with the people that He's called imperfect people that He gathers into imperfect gatherings... And he's going to shock the universe by what he does through his church. And if you oppose that plan, if you don't line up with that plan, 
you're going to be crushed. Broken to pieces. Crushed. If you want to try to fight against Him, this cornerstone, your end will not be pretty. Broken to pieces. Crushed. That means shattered and pulverized. And it doesn't take much imagination to see those words in your head, does it? You want to kill the air? You want to kill the sun? You want to take his inheritance? You want to take what is God's and selfishly make it yours? You better look out. You'll be broken to pieces. You will be crushed. All of his enemies will not just be taken out of the way, but will be taken to an ultimate awful end. The cornerstone will stand. The cornerstone will remain. The cornerstone will win. The cornerstone will reign victorious. And his enemies? Well, it ain't good. Let's just say that. And oh, hey, look, these guys finally get it. Verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, oh, Eureka, they perceived he was speaking about them. And that's not good for them. They're like, say what now? Because they heard his parables and they're answering his questions and all of a sudden they perceived that he was speaking about them. You mean we're the tenants? We're the ones who said the owner would put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons? Jesus from Nazareth, are you trying to tell us that he, God, will put us these holy, pious people to a miserable death. We're going to fall on this stone? The stone's going to fall on us? Oh, and hey, you know that we're trying to have you killed, by the way? I can't imagine them processing this all at once. God let them see what Jesus was saying, and they recognized that He was talking about them. It's like if I walked up to you and I said, let me tell you a little story about this person that had a booger in their nose. That everybody could see. And it was really gross. And that person didn't have a clue. And we really wish they would get a clue. Because it's really gross. You're talking about me. Yeah, I'm talking about you. Booger nose. It's like the lights came on. He's talking about us. The holiest of the holy. The most pious of the pious. The defenders of the law of God. The leaders of the people of God. Us? Yes, you. You. You are the tenants. And God is going to cast you out of the vineyard, kill you, and let out this vineyard to people that will produce fruits for Him from what is His. Yes, you are correct. Verse 46 ends our passage today. And although they were seeking to arrest Him, They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Well, they were mad enough to try to arrest him. They had power and authority to arrest him, to take him into their custody. But note that that word although there. Although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds. Of course they did. They worked their whole lives to impress and manipulate the crowds. And these crowds, the ones they're trying to impress, held Jesus to be a prophet. I mean, they had just a couple of days ago gave Jesus a rousing welcome into town shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! And while the Jewish leaders surely didn't like that, they recognized the way that the wind was blowing. And they knew that if they tried to arrest Jesus here in public, in the temple, in front of everybody, it was going to get ugly. 
They knew the crowd saw Jesus as a prophet. After he had ridden into the Hosannas, people said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. And while that was woefully inadequate about who Jesus really was, it showed the Jewish leaders that they had better find a better time and place and a better way to bring Jesus in. Not now, not here. So let's not. Yet. And that's our passage for today. So we've got to turn our focus to application. How can we apply this passage from today? Three application points focusing around the letter O. Owner, object, and oppose. Owner, object, and oppose. O, O, O. First application point is owner. And this is pretty easy from the parable. What does God own? The answer is yes. Everything. Okay? Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. So this earth, this world, this big old world, God owns it all. Well, that's not all. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. For by Him, through Christ, all things were created. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. I laugh at the bigness of the world. This is a tiny, tiny, tiny speck of dust floating through a giant universe. And he's got the whole world in his hands. Pshaw! He'd have to put it... He don't have it in his hands. He's holding the earth up. He's so strong. No, no, no. He's like, earth? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Tiny little spoon. All things hold together in him. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. All things. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible. And listen, that can be very cliche to us. Yep, God owns everything, it's all His. Do you understand the ramifications of that? What that means for your money? What that means for your job, for your kids, for your spouse, for your things, those things that are yours? that you're so tight-fisted with, that I'm so tight-fisted with, it doesn't belong to you, it belongs to Him. How are you using it to glorify Him, to give Him the fruits that are His in their seasons? He owns it all. He has the very hairs on your head numbered. He knows the number of breaths that were marked out for you to breathe. He owns Beckley. He owns Kenosha. He owns DC. He owns the Kremlin. It's all his. All of it. So what's the application for us? What do you do with that awareness? Does it change the way you live? It should. It should for me too. I don't live most of my days like my life belongs to Him, like my wife belongs to Him, like my kids belong to Him, like my job belongs to Him, like my money belongs to my car. My guitar. It's God's guitar. 
These hands are God's hands. These eyes are God's eyes. You treat things differently when they're not yours, don't you? I hope you do. If not, I ain't letting you borrow nothing. Nothing. You ain't breaking my stuff. You ain't losing my books. I've gone all digital. You can't borrow my books anymore. You treat things differently when they're somebody else's. And if you don't, you ain't been raised right. Your life is not your own. Which brings us from owner to object. What's the point of all this stuff that God owns? Why does he have all this stuff? What's what's the object of it all? Well, from our passage today, Jesus made it clear that God's looking for a return on his investment. God's looking for, we talked last week about fruit from his vineyard. Now let me ask you, as far as application goes, how's that going in your life? What in your life have you given back to God and said, I recognize this is yours and I want you to see that I've used it well for your glory? These eyes, these hands, that guitar, my car, my job, my wife, my kids, my straight razor. Somebody's going to watch it and say, what? What's that going to do? <laughs> Some of you are going, what? I, don't, I missed this. We spoke last week that the goal of the Christian life ultimately is fruit. That's the deeds that you do. Okay? We can want to do all the things we want to do and we can say we're trying really hard, but if there's not actual deeds in our lives that show the fruit of repentance and faith and glory toward God, we're not doing anything. We're doing what we're doing to benefit ourselves and we're locked in ourselves and we're stuck in ourselves and I'll try harder to do better. Why? So that I'll feel better. And so that people will look at me and say, you're doing better. But that's not God's object. That's not the point of why God invested himself in you. It's not why God invested these breaths into your lungs. God gave you the breath that He gave you. God gave you the hands and the eyes and the guitars and the things that He gave you so that you might glorify Him. For God's glory and the good of others. That's the return that God's looking for on His investment. We'll see this in a fuller view when we get to Matthew 25. And there Jesus tells the parable of the talents. And he gave one, 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 three, one, five, and what they did with it. So that's really a good illustration of this. But we'll, we'll deal with that when we get to Matthew 25. We also saw it in Matthew 13, which we mentioned last week as well. That ultimately the proof is fruit. God is looking for and expecting fruit from his believers. The owner of the vineyard is expecting a return on his investment. And his investment is into us. Watch this. Ooh, these are sobering words. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. 
For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether, we're, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Now watch this. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The owner of the vineyard that you're living in is going to call you to account. And I hope that's not a frightening proposition to you. If it is, repent. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. You're not going to give an account to God for what your spouse did or didn't do. You're not going to give an account to God for what your kids did or didn't do. You're not going to give an account to God for what your boss did or didn't do. You're going to give an account to God for what you have done. Or more accurately... You're going to give an account to God for what He has done through you. And that's good news. It's great news, actually. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So, application point, Glorify God in your body. Listen, God is not some ethereal, mysterious, non-being being. He's real. And so I should glorify Him with what's real. My body. What I look at, what I touch, what I taste, what I say, what I do. My goal, the object of God's investment in me, is to give Him glory in my body. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, Paul says in Romans 12. The most spiritual thing you can do is use your body to glorify God. And that's what you're going to be judged according to when you stand before Him. Did you give glory to God with your body? Not did you feel real good at a service one time and feel real kind affections toward God. What are you doing? What return is the master going to get from what he's invested into you? And that's shown by what you do with your body. Owner, object, and finally, oppose. God loves everybody the same, right? No, unfortunately that's not true. There is common grace. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. The rains fall on the just and the unjust. There is a common grace that is the same for all people. But God has enemies. Human enemies. And He opposes them. And will exact perfect justice on them 
at some point in the future. Listen to me. The vineyard owner is coming back. And those wicked tenants that have not done well with what he has given them, he will cast those miserable wretches out. And if they fall over the stone or if the stone falls on them, they will be beaten, wrecked, pulverized. And that's really bad news for those people. Are you one of them? Well, I mean, I I don't really care about God, but I wouldn't say I'm his enemy. If you don't care about him, you're his enemy. If you're not living for him, you're his enemy. Now listen, Christian, if you're in Christ, you're not his enemy. Praise God. Praise the living God if I am in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation. Praise God, wretched man that I am. And God's not mad at you, Christian. But I tell you what, Scripture says He's angry with the wicked every day. Every day. But God's a God of love. Absolutely He is. And He's a God of perfect justice and of perfect wrath. And He will execute His wrath upon those who have opposed Him. Psalm 7, 10 through 13. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. The vineyard owner cares about how people treat what he's let out to them. And he's angry with those who don't use it properly. We see it finally when all things come to consummation. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence. Earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And, in the, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death of the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And I pray that we can't read that without weeping. And that it would move us to action. To lay down our lives for those who don't know the King who is coming. Revelation 21.8 But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And if it were not for grace, so go I. I'm cowardly, I'm faithless, I'm detestable, I'm a murderer, I'm sexually immoral, I'm a sorcerer, I'm an idolater, I'm a liar. And I deserve this. But God in His grace said, that's not for you, I've got something better for you. Why? Because He's God. 
And because of the great love with which He has loved us, He has in grace saved us. In grace, He has given us the gift of faith that we might believe in Him, that we might repent of our sins, and that we might do the deeds that show that we have repented. God opposes the evil. And He will bring them to a miserable end. And I pray that that would move us to action. It's not my job to save people. That's God's job. It is my job to preach the gospel to myself, to each other, to everybody I can, hoping and praying that God might grant these murderers, sexually immoral, cowardly, faithless, detestable people just like me, that He might grant them the gift of repentance, that they might change their minds and their hearts and their deeds and bring forth the fruit that the Master is looking for. He owns it all. And He has invested Himself in us so that we might go out and bear fruit and do the deeds that show that we have repented. And He will ultimately oppose all those who stand against them and He will crush them. That's the truth of the gospel that we see today in Jesus' parable. May it move us to repentance. May it move us to action. Let's pray. Father, in and of ourselves, we have nothing to offer you. Nothing. But you have invested yourself into us. You have given us freely, bountifully, free access to the river of life. You have placed your Holy Spirit within us, a deposit that is surely great, that is surely greater than anything we could think or imagine. And you have prepared us for action. You have prepared us that we might bear fruit for your glory and for the good of others. God, deliver us from the selfishness that is so focused on what is ours. What is mine. Deliver me from what is mine. And may I receive from your hand that which is yours and use it for your glory and for the good of others. May I produce the fruit that you've invested in me. And may I give you your fruits in their seasons. May that sum up the very essence of my life, of our lives. And God, again, if there sit here anybody this morning who is your enemy, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, they would hear the call to flee from the wrath to come. Flee into the shelter of the finished work of Jesus, confessing their sins, repenting of their sins, and showing faith toward the sufficient work of Christ to save them. Help us all, God, so that you might be glorified. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we just stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. If you're going to hang out, talk to each other, do it outside, please.